Well, good morning, Trinity Church. My name is Doug. I'm the interim lead pastor, and it's good to be back with you. I want to thank all of you who prayed for Lisa and I as we said uh, to a couple of family members, we'll see you later at the memorial services. So we were in Kansas this last weekend and uh, then down in uh, San Diego and had a great time with family, but it's good to be back with you. Hey, this morning I have a couple of envelopes I want to pass out to a few people. And uh, if you get one of these this morning, uh, don't open it, okay? Just hang on to it for a little bit, and uh, I will let you know what to do with it a little bit later. There you go. So let's see here. Don't get to go to this section very often. And I've got one more. And again, if you get one of these envelopes, please do not open it right now. Uh, you're going to have a chance later on in the service to do something with it. And in the meantime, uh, I want to thank Bill for speaking this last week. He did a great job. And uh, yeah, praise God for Bill. He talked about how mercy is God's first step toward us. Always mercy. But he also talked uh, out of Malachi about how to avoid the judgment of God. And so we had this conversation last week about God's judgment. How do we avoid it? How do we experience his mercy? And today, we want to take some time to continue in Malachi chapter 3 to have a conversation about God's ownership of all things. Now, that may seem like a new thought for some of us this morning that, that God literally owns everything. Um, and we may be thinking to ourselves, well, there are some things I don't think he owns, like my car. I just bought it at CarMax. Yes, I've got the title to it, and uh, I might even be still making payments on it. So I think that belongs to me. Or you may have a mortgage, and you're paying off your home, and sometimes people will say to you, do you own your home or rent? And what's the response? Well, I own my home, but really the bank does, right? So God doesn't own that. We may be thinking, well, I just bought this new computer, and I think that belongs to me, or I started this business, and it definitely is something I own and operate. We might even be thinking of the, the stocks and bonds and CDs that we have, and we say, well, those are things that I own at this point in my life. There's a lot of things that I am responsible for. And, and honestly, as we think about this idea of God's ownership of all things, I don't think the IRS would agree with that, or the Wall Street, or guys like Elon Musk and others who own a lot of things. They would say, well, no, hold on a second. Let's talk about this. Does God really own everything. But folks, the Bible is so very clear about this. We, we can't miss it. There are a number of verses on your sermon outline, if you have it with you this morning. I'm going to put some up here on the screen just to talk about how God rehearses this idea that he truly owns it all. David writes in Psalm 24.1, he says, the earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. And David recognizes and God inspires him to say, hey, all of this stuff in the world, everything the world contains, you and I included, belongs to God. He writes later on in Psalm 104, 24, these words, O Lord, how many are your works. In wisdom you've made them all. The earth is full of your possessions. And so there we see it again. Everything around us belongs to God. Nature the natural uh, reserve of chemicals and precious metals in the world, everything, God owns it because he made it. 
And this isn't just an Old Testament idea, lest we get the idea that in the age of the gospel it doesn't apply. We see Paul writing in um, 1 Corinthians 10, 26, and he says, For the earth is the Lord's and all it contains. And there again is this sweeping statement of ownership of all things. If you go back to the Old Testament, Haggai chapter 2, verse 8, listen to this. God gets very specific. And he says, the silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. Every penny that we have, whether it's of gold or silver or some other composition, it belongs to God. Psalm 50, verse 10 says, for every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. So it doesn't matter if it's wild or domesticated. God says those animals belong to me. Now he can say this because he created all things. They are the outcome of his abilities and his wisdom and his nature and his craft. Every breath, in fact, he says, every breath that we breathe belongs to God. Job 30, verse 4, the Spirit of God has made me and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. Would you take a minute this morning and take a deep breath? <sighs> Say, thank God. That was something God gives us. Every breath that we take. And I love the fact that he even says our ability to earn wealth comes from him. Even the intellect, the creativeness, the passion that we bring to business, whatever it might be. God says in 1 Chronicles chapter 29, 12, both riches and honor come from you. You rule over all and in your hand is power and might and it lies in your hand to make great and to strengthen everyone. And look, notice too in Deuteronomy, we'll put this up on the screen. He says, beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand has gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is to this day. Even our souls belong to God. Ezekiel writes in Ezekiel 18.4, Behold, all souls are mine, the father, soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine. So why do we take time to think about this ownership of God? Why is this critical for you and I? Why is it important that we understand this truth from Scripture, both Old and New Testament? Well, it's important because if we don't grasp it, we actually become thieves and robbers of God. Malachi is, is exceptionally clear on this. If we don't understand this, we actually begin to rob ourselves of great good. So if you have your Bibles this morning, I hope you do, would you open them to Malachi chapter 3, and we're going to look at verses 6 through 12, and then next week, we're going to wrap up all of uh, the rest of Malachi. So I'm reading for you out of the ESV this morning. And it says this. And I want you to notice two key words in the very beginning of this. The first one is for. And the second one is therefore. Notice in verse 6. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, O children of Jacob, you are not consumed. From the days of your fathers, you've turned aside from my statutes and haven't kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Verse 8, will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? Wherein have we robbed you? And he says, in your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. 
And notice the last part of this section. And he says, and thereby, when you do this, put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you, so it will not destroy the fruits of your soil, and you, your uh, vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. So you notice he starts off right in this section, verse 6, and he says, for. Now he's looking back to everything that Bill looked at with us last week. He says, because of that, for, that's a literary stop sign. It literally is saying to us, slow down, stop speed reading, take a breath, get ready for a change of topic. We're making a transition. And then the therefore is this literary parking lot where he says, I want you to, to place your thoughts and the outcome, park them right here on this idea, let them come to rest. So notice what he's saying. For I, the Lord, do not change. It seems like a sudden shift in, in ideas from what we see in the first part of chapter 3. Because I don't change, therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. So the four is an ex explanation to us of, of why Israel had not been completely destroyed by God for their rebellion against God. And you notice how he says to them, you've been doing this for a long time. And in verse 5, you notice he listed several of the grievous uh, sins that they were committing against him. They were offering diseased gifts, roadkill, things that were mangled to God as sacrifices for their holy um, devotion to God. There was this speak-to-the-hand kind of denial of his love for them. You don't love us. How have you loved us? There's this dishonoring and disgust for his creation of marriage. And, and they're beginning to accuse him of delighting in evil because they don't see his justice actively engaged around them. God has been incredibly kind. He has been merciful, as Bill pointed out last week. That's the first step of God, the mercy of God. He's been patient with them, and he says, because I don't change, you are not consumed. You're not annihilated for your wicked ways. And it just reminds us that because the Lord does not change, we have hope. We have hope because God says, I don't change. Because he is immutable, unchanging in his purposes, in his character, in his nature, in his promises. And because he doesn't change, we as individuals who sin and struggle in life can have a hope with regard to our sins and God's patience. I like what James says in James 1.17. He says, every good and perfect gift is from above. And it comes down from the Father of lights. And notice its description, with whom... There is no variableness nor shadow of turning. James is looking at the sunrise and sunset, and he says there is no change with God. In fact, one commentator puts it this way. He says this shadow of turning refers to our perspective on the sun. It is eclipsed, eclipsed as it moves and casts its shadow. The sun rises and sets. It appears and disappears every day. It comes out of one tropic and enters into another at certain seasons of the year. But with God, who spiritually speaking is light itself, there is no darkness at all. There's no change with him, nor anything like it. God is unchangeable in his nature. 
perfections, purposes, promises, and gifts. Why is that important? And how do we know that God doesn't change? Well, we know from Scripture, God says, I am eternal, right? So let me give you three practical reasons how we know God does not change. Number one, change is chronological. Change is chronological. In other words, there is a time before the change, during the change, and after the change. And because God is eternal and exists outside of time, it is impossible for him to change. Secondly, we know only imperfect things can change. Think about ourselves and how we have changed through life. We begin to get rid of the stuff we don't like and bring in stuff we do like. And God tells us, I am perfect. Nothing can improve me. So God can't change because he's not imperfect. And thirdly, and I like this reason, change is connected to new information or changed circumstances. So since God knows all things, and, and since um, he controls all things, there is no surprise or unexpected moments with God. He does not change. And here's Malachi's second point for us. Because God does not change, return is possible. We do not have to be alienated from God in our behaviors, in our wrong choices or actions. God says return is possible. He says return to me and I will return to you. So instead of being isolated from God and under his wrath, he says anyone can come back. It begins with what Bill talked about last week, repentance. This is the idea. The idea of return in scripture is coming back to the starting line. Getting back to the very beginning, Genesis chapter 8 verse 3 uses it to talk about the floodwaters of Noah's day that receded or returned back to the oceans and the underground caverns. Genesis 8, 9 talks about the dove that returned to the ark, came back to its starting point. And Malachi is simply saying to us, God leaves the door open to restoration if you desire it, if you want it. So do we, as God's people, desire it? Have we come to a point in our life, whatever point that might be, where we say, I'm aware of the need in my life for something new. I'm a person who wants a fresh start. I want to have a hunger for life transformation from God. I want a new hope in my life. And God says, return is possible. But for the people in Malachi's day, that craving to be a new creation was completely absent. And you notice in our text, they ask uh, the question, how or wherein should we return? So that isn't a question of methodology. That's not a question of, well, how do we do this? It's a flat-out denial of the need. How shall we return if we haven't left you? One of the translations says. In fact, they were literally saying, well, that's a, that's a great idea. The only problem is we never stepped away. And God's response to them is, oh, but you have stepped away. In fact, he says, you are robbing me. So let's pause for a second and, and ask, does that accusation seem strange to you? Think about the flow of the text. Look back at verse 5. What do you see in verse 5? You see all of these actions that he accuses them of. And he says, you've been acting as adulterers. You've had sorcery. You've lied. 
You've oppressed the worker and his wages, the widow, the fatherless. You've thrust aside the sojourner. You don't even fear me. Why didn't God use one of those as his accusation for why they have walked away from him? But instead, he says, you have robbed me. I mean, is that even possible to rob God? But he accuses them of stealing from him. And, and you can just hear them saying, whoa, 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 wait, wait a second. No, hold on. What do you mean we're robbing God? I mean, we didn't point a gun at his back when he was at the ATM. We haven't flim-flammed him out of his house. We haven't shystered him with the latest scam. What are you talking about? And Malachi makes his next point, and he says, well, robbing God is actually a common crime, which is even still possible today. So let's take a look at this. Malachi says, will man rob God? You see how he's asking that same question? Is this even possible? But you are robbing me. You say, well, how have we robbed you? And the answer is, in your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. God's blessing has been removed, and in its place is this heavy curse upon them, the removal of good in their lives. And they've been experiencing this, and they're saying, God, why are you not judging the evil? Why are you not blessing our marriages? Why are you not doing good in our lives? And he says, well, the basic problem is you have forgotten that I own everything. That's the issue. They were treating everything they had as belonging strictly to themselves. And the small portion that God had said, this belongs to me, they refused to give him out of all of the wealth and all of the, the possessions that he had given them. And you remember when they entered the land of Canaan. Remember back in Deuteronomy chapter 6. When they came into the land, listen to what God did for them. And the Lord your God brought you into the land that he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you with great and good cities that you didn't build, houses full of all kinds of good things you didn't fill, wells you didn't dig, vineyards and olive trees you didn't plant. But when you eat and are full, take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. And you notice how in verse 5, that's the final charge. You didn't fear me. You have forgotten that everything belongs to me. And I, I gave it all to you, and I just asked you for a portion back. Now, the tithe in the Old Testament was a tenth of all of the crops, of, of all of the livestock, of all of the income that God gave them. He said, I just want a tenth back. And I want you to understand this morning why he asked for this. It wasn't because he needed it. It was because he took that tithe from all the people and he brought it over to the Levites and he gave it to them. And he said, this is your life-sustaining income. All of the crops and sheep and everything that is the tenth, that belongs to you guys so you can minister at the tabernacle, minister at the temple. Now, you might think of the Levites kind of like a Trinity staff, the ones who prepare everything for when we come on a Sunday morning, and they're doing the ministry, and they're engaging in all of the activities that make it possible for us to be here. So God takes that tenth, and he gives it to the Levites. And what do the Levites do with it? God says to them, you guys take a tenth, and you give it to the priests over here. We might think of them as the Trinity pastors who are ministering the word of God to us and shepherding us. And he, he has this beautiful system where just one-tenth of what they have 
They keep 90%. One-tenth goes to the functioning of the house of God for the purpose of welcoming them in, making them holy so he can have a relationship and fellowship with them. It's this good thing. In fact, when they would bring their tithes and offerings, they were allowed to sit at a table with the Levites and have a meal to celebrate what they were bringing to God. They actually enjoyed a portion of that tenth. What a beautiful way for God to sustain his, his house of worship. But because they had stopped doing that, the Levites and the priests were leaving. Nehemiah, who's a contemporary of Malachi, writes this in chapter 13. He's in the same setting, and he says, I also found out that the portions of the Levites, that's the tithe, had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his own field, trying to sustain themselves with their own crops and their own livestock. And so he says, I confronted the officials and I said, why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together, and I set them in their stations. And then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain, the wine, and the oil into the storehouses. So do you see what's going on? God is concerned about the welfare of his worship and his honor and the holiness of his people. And he wants them to come close to him. But the functioning of the tabernacle has ceased. So Malachi writes, and he says, you are robbing God because his house is being neglected. And in the Old Testament, the tithes and offerings enabled the house of God to operate in a smooth and efficient manner. In the New Testament, your generous giving enables God's house to operate smoothly and efficiently as well. And so God's desire for his place of worship is to thrive, to be vibrant and alive and effective. He wants us to draw closer to him in holiness and relationship. So as I studied this week, preparing for this morning, I, I came across a quote from a pastor I've read before. I really appreciate his perspective. His name is Pastor Stephen Cole, and I think he nails this for the American church today. It's a little bit of an extended quote, but we'll have it on the screen. Listen as he talks about Malachi 3. He says, giving is one of the most fail-proof litmus tests of our relationship to God. On more than one occasion, Jesus linked a person's giving to eternal life, to the experience of salvation. Out of it comes this generosity. When Zacchaeus, the wealthy tax collector, got right with God, his first recorded words were, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone, do tax collectors defraud? Absolutely they did. If I've defrauded anyone of anything, I'll give back four times as much. His salvation immediately touched his pocketbook. And Jesus conformed this formerly greedy man's conversation by saying, today salvation has come to this house. You see the change in this man's heart? It's because God did a work in him. Cole goes on to say, contrast that with the tragic account of the rich young ruler who seemed like such an eager potential convert. He came running, not walking to Jesus, and asked, good teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? What a witnessing opportunity. And Jesus said, that's easy. Just invite me into your heart by faith. No, that's not what Jesus said. He knew that the man had an idol, and he said, one thing you lack. Go and sell all your possessions. Give to the poor. You'll have treasure in heaven. Come and follow me. 
But the man went away grieved, unwilling to obey Jesus' words. And Jesus didn't run after him and say, well, how about just 10% then? Rather, he said to his disciples, how hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. Cole writes in Luke 16, 10 through 11, Jesus states that our stewardship of money is a test of how we will perform more important responsibilities. He who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much. And he who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth, who will entrust the true riches to you? And in the context, the very little thing is the money that God has entrusted to us. The much or true riches are the souls of people. He says, our use of money is God's test of whether we can entrust souls to our care. You can impress other Christians by your extensive Bible knowledge, your fervent prayers, your many years of service in the church, but God doesn't look at any of those things to test your faithfulness. Rather, he looks how you and I manage the money he has entrusted to us. So are we greedy or generous? Now, I handed out three envelopes earlier. For those of you who received them, would you, uh, first of all, hold them up so everyone can see them? So we got one there, one here, one here. Just out loud, as loud as you can, what does it say on the envelope? Doug's property. <laughs> what is in that envelope belongs to me. But I have given it to them. I've entrusted it to them for a reason. So would you please open that envelope and take a look at what's inside there and just kind of hold it up nice and high so everyone around you can see. I hope I didn't glue them too tight. Okay. What do you have there? Can you count that? $45. What do you have over here? $30? $25. Now, it's interesting, different amounts, right? So the, the one who got 45 is going, oh, yes. This is a cool Sunday, right? Now, there's two things I want you to do with this. Number one, this is my money. I want you to keep that in mind. It does not belong to you. There's always a hook, isn't there? Yeah. But God says it all belongs to me, and yet he gives it to us. So here's what I want you to do. Number one, you can keep 10 bucks to go to In-N-Out or a Starbucks coffee for yourself, all right? So take 10 bucks right off the top, stick it in your pocket. Okay, you got it? Put away. Enjoy that. I want you to be blessed by that. Have fun with that. The rest of it, I want you to go and do good. All right? And I want you to do good, not on the basis of what you think good would be, but on the basis of what you think I think good would be. All right? So based on what you know about me, I have a love for the homeless. Whenever I see one, I really do try to stop. If I, I was going to say if I have time, even if I don't sometimes. I have a love for the homeless. I have love for kids who are in need. I have a love for a lot of things that God has put in my heart that are righteous things. So as you spend that money, you do good with it. Just keep in mind, it belongs to me, not to you. And I have given it to you for a reason, to go and do good in my name. Folks, this is what God does with us. He gives us varying amounts of intellect. I am not the sharpest pencil in the bunch. But God has given me an intellect 
He's given me a heart and a passion for things. He's given me experiences. He's given me my personality. He's given me all of my abilities and talents. And he says, Doug, go and do good with that. And my question is, well, God, what is good? Well, read my word. Okay, thank you. So that everything I have, on the way here this morning, I was praying and I said, God, thank you for loaning me this car. God, thank you for entrusting to me the house you gave me. God, thank you for the, whatever's in my bank account. You put it there. And I, and I know I've worked hard, and you guys have worked hard for what you have, right? But God says, I gave you the ability to earn that wealth. It belongs to me. And so as we leave here today, one of the challenges I think Malachi is giving us, even as he gave to the Old Testament uh, nation of Israel, is to say, know that God owns it all. And he's given it to you. And interestingly, he doesn't ask for 90% of it back. He could have. He says, keep 90. Give me this tenth. Give me this amount that is going to fund my Old Testament temple and tabernacle. It's going to fund the ministry of my church and do good things with it. I want you to write down Luke chapter 12 because we're not going to have time to look into it this morning, but uh, you might write it down and, and start at about verse 13. And, and I want to just summarize for you really quickly. Jesus tells this parable about the rich fool who has all of his possessions and he's got so much that he says to himself, gosh, I, got a need, I need to find a better bank. I need bigger buildings to hold all of my stuff. And Jesus or God comes to him and he says, fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you prepared, whose will they be? So it will be with one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Verse 48 of Luke 12 says, Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. So Jesus says to us, Help me build my church. Give of, it, give of yourselves to it liberally of who you are and what God has given to you. Do good in this world. Be rich in good deeds. Be kind. Meet needs. Care for others. Spare no expense. Invest in eternity. Don't be frugal here. And then Malachi wraps this up for us in verses 10 through 12 this morning, and he says simply this, God loves to be tested in this. This is the only place in the Bible God says, test me. Everywhere else he says, do not test me. But here, he says, I want you to slam the doors and kick the tires in this promise. Because there are three things I will do in response to a person who takes me at my word and acts on this. He says, number one, I will open the windows of heaven and I will flood out blessing until there is no more need. Do not read want there. Right? Until there's no more need. He will rebuke the devourer that reduces the sources of income and well-being. And we might be tempted to say that's Old Testament stuff, but it's not. Because Jesus said to his disciples when they went out the second time, two by two, do not take a backpack, do not take a wallet, no ATM cards, don't even take a change of clothes. I will provide for you when you are serving me. And in Philippians 4.19, Paul writes, my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. 
my God will supply all of your needs according to his riches. He's going to open up the floodgates of heaven, meet the needs of those who respond to this. Sixty-some years ago, Lisa and I started giving generously to God. And there's five reasons why we did it. I've alluded to different ones over the, the series that we've done in different times. But I want to simply capsulize it for you this morning. Why do we do this? We start at 10% and we go up from there. Number one, I'm a New Testament Levite. I'm a pastor. And so God has said to me, here's, here's your income. You need to tithe off of this. And so we do. Hebrews 7, we talked about that a few weeks ago, reminds us that Jesus is eternal and immortal, and he saves me completely and fully. And just as Abraham paid a tithe to Melchizedek, a much lesser king, how can I do any less than give Jesus more than Abraham gave Melchizedek? We want to be generous, number three. Just as I would never tip a waiter less than 10% unless they had totally botched their job. Right? This last week, I've been looking at receipts that I've been given. And at the bottom of every one, you guys all know this, there's a starting percentage. What is that? 15, 18, one of them I saw 21%. And it also said below that, give more if you want to be generous. I thought, oh, that's interesting. But it started at 21%. How can I give God less than I would give a human being who has served me well? And... Reason four, I don't want money to own my heart. God has been very clear. You can't serve both God and money. You'll serve one or the other. And lastly, we want to experience God's great provision for us rather than depending upon my wits to make my income. I want God to provide for us. So, will we take God at his word? Look at the three things that will be on your screen here that God does for us. He opens up heaven, pours out his resources, says you're not going to have needs in your life. You may think your want is a need or your need is a want, but you won't have needs. Secondly, he's going to rebuke the devourer. He is going to sew up that hole in your financial pocket. Will you keep putting money there and you feel like, gosh, I never quite have enough. God says, I'm going to sew that up. I'm going to make your money go further. I'm going to make things last longer. Folks, last year I sold my Toyota 4Runner. I had owned it 20 years I got the same price for it, almost exactly I paid for it 20 years ago. Why? Because at the moment I needed to sell it, the price of used cars went skyrocketing. And it was almost like God said, okay, Doug, now's the time to sell it so you can reinvest it. God takes things in our lives, and he just makes them last. He makes them last forever. Look at your shoes and your outfit this morning. If you were part of Israel, God would have said, that'll last 40 years. That outfit's going to last 40 years. How would you love to wear that pair of shoes for 40 years, ladies? Guys, right? God says, I'm going to make it last if you will follow me. He's going to rebuke the devourer. And thirdly, he's going to cause people to speak well of us, taking pleasure in us for the generosity we give to the ministry of the church, to individuals in need. People are going to rise up and say, this is a good person. Nations will declare, this is a good church. So let me end with this, and I know we're a little bit over time, but Chuck Swindoll, good old Chuck Swindoll, says this about this passage. When it comes to money and material possessions, too many of us, if we are completely honest, are owned by the things that we own. 
Like slaves serving an unrelenting master, we spend our lifetimes making money so we can buy stuff that grows old or breaks down or needs repair, and then we have to make more money to repair or, repair or replace all that stuff. He says, but let me give you four simple, single-syllable words that will give you freedom, real financial freedom. These words aren't original with me, and quite frankly, they don't sound all that profound, but I've never come across four words in all my studies that can better free us from financial bondage. Here they are. God owns it all. He says, in pleasing him, we live our lives with open hands. We accept that he entrusts to us only as stewards, never as owners. We dare not think of gripping the things he entrusts to us. We hold everything loosely. We simply maintain the treasures he entrusts to us, investing them wisely, but never forgetting that any time. He wants to remove those things from us. If he does, it's his sovereign right. God owns it all. You will never be in financial trouble if you remember these four words. They will revolutionize your thinking on finances. And he says, I wish God owns it all. Could appear on every check, pocketbook, income tax return, stock transaction, credit card, home mortgage, car title, real estate contract, every business deal. I wish all the stuff in our homes, including our houses, were stamped with that reminder in bold letters, God owns it all. I really wanted this morning to have bought for you a rubber stamp that would have said that. You could take it home and begin stamping stuff, right? But I think God wants to impress it on our thoughts and our hearts. He truly does own it all. And if we will simply be generous with him, generous in our lives and in our world, God says, I'm going to take good care of you. You are not going to have needs that go unmet. And I can tell you for the 60-plus years that Lisa and I have tithed and given generously, we have never ever had a need God did not meet. Never. And that's amazing to me that God is good and his goodness lasts. So for those of you who received my cash today, enjoy 10 bucks of it and go do good with the rest of it. For the rest of us, let's just close our service in prayer. Father God, you are so generous with us. You truly do care deeply about how our lives are lived and what the needs are present in them and around us and with our family life and business lives. And God, we confess there are moments, and this is true of, of me, Father, as well at times, where I look at the need and I say, I've got to hang on to more of this stuff to meet the need. And Father, in doing so, I, I creep into this greedy spirit, Father, of, I, I've got to take care of myself. And Father, we confess to you, there are moments in our lives like that, and, and this morning you're simply pushing back against that and saying, well, wait a second, I care about your need. And you are not a bucket, you're a pipeline. So let me give to you what I own. Be generous with it in the way you live life, and I'll take care of your needs at the end of the month. I'll make sure that they're met. God, may we be men and women of courage and faith <clears throat> who say boldly to you, God, we believe that. We're going to trust on that. This is not health and wealth. This is trust and obey. And Father, as we do, we want to just be able to say to you, and we know it will be true, God, you are good. Thank you for taking good care of us. And thank you for letting us be impacting the world through this church and through our own personal walk. So God, we praise you for that this morning. We thank you 
and we trust you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, if you would like to have prayer this morning for anything, we have people up front who would love to pray with you. And for those of you who are departing today, just heading on out into the world, may God bless you, may he keep you, and may he use you for the kingdom of Christ. Thanks for coming.